to hear is based on eyewitness testimony and evidence collected before, during, and after an actual paranormal investigation. The individual's names and locations have been changed to protect the identities of all persons involved. We've all experienced a dream that seems too real, a room that seems too dark, a presence when we know we're alone. We exist in a world of many realities where the impossible is probable and the unknown can be known. This is the realm of the weird. The first time I met Marion was soon after she had published her first book on Michigan haunts and hauntings. We casually discussed local legends, mysterious stories, and the other events that persons involved in the research of supernatural phenomena experience. She was caring, friendly, a great storyteller, and always a supporter of new researchers and new research technologies. One of her favorite stories was of a woman in white who stood near the tallest headstone in a local cemetery. Marion attributed the large amount of car accidents to the figure in the cemetery. She said she had reports of drivers swerving at a sharp turn in the road in an attempt to not hit the woman in white, who would vanish only to reappear near the obelisk in the graveyard. Tragically, Marion passed away shortly after our third meeting, and as years rolled by, I never forgot her and her fascination with the woman in white. Years later, when some friends of mine decided that they wanted to go on an investigation, I was stumped for a place to take them. Of course, now there are thousands of books and guides to haunted places, but at the time, and with the internet in its infancy, I returned to my personal library and located Marion's book. I decided I would take them to the graveyard of the woman in white. It's funny now to think that I had never gone there. Marion spoke so fondly of it all those years ago. So you can imagine my surprise when, not only while rereading the book, I noticed how vague her directions were to Servant's Cemetery, but she'd even spelled some of the roads wrong. I called the city and asked where Servant's Cemetery was located. The clerk told me there was no such cemetery. I knew Marion wouldn't have made a story up, so I got in my car and, using her misspelled crossroads as a reference, I went out to find the cemetery. Up and down I drove, past trailer park, abandoned houses, and overgrown vacant lots. Night was falling and in frustration, I almost gave up. I started down the road that Marion had misspelled, this time not looking for a cemetery but looking for the sharp turn in the road where Marion said accidents were likely to take place. I checked Marion's notes, and she had mentioned that there was a vacant lot across from the cemetery. When I found the turn in the road, I realized that the vacant lot was now a church, and the gates to the cemetery were so overgrown that they were almost invisible from the road. I parked my car, pulled the brush and branches away from the entrance gates, and my heart sank. The arch above the gate read, a different cemetery. But how could it be wrong? Everything fit. I walked a few paces into the graveyard, and it all became clear. 
Marion had been a great storyteller, but she was perhaps not the most thorough researcher. As I scanned the headstones, at least one out of every three or four read servant. Marion had named the cemetery incorrectly. I returned to my car, ecstatic at finding the location, and at noon the next day I was back and looking at the tallest stone in the cemetery. The monument was over six feet tall, and it read the name Lizzie. The girl it belonged to had died when she was twenty-one. This, I believed, was the woman in white. Of course I was fascinated with that stone, but the beauty of the cemetery drew me in. Abandoned, overgrown, but beautiful. As I walked around the cemetery, graphing out any trips, holes, or places that my team would fall during the night, I heard a slight rustling in the bushes behind me. I bent down to see what it was, and to my surprise, a small black cat darted out from under the bushes. He ran across the cemetery and stared at me. Jokingly, I said to him, Go on, show me where the ghosts are. He immediately ran over and lay down in front of the large gravestone for the 21-year-old Lizzie. I took some pictures of him and told him, Keep going, there's probably more than one here. He almost seemed to know what I wanted. He stood up and darted from one headstone to another, stopping now and then to lay down on top of them until I reached there to take a picture. After I had photographed him at the three or four graves where he laid down, I told him, Okay, you can go. And he did. I found the entire event amusing, being in a haunted cemetery with a little black cat. I was even more excited now to take my friends on an investigation later that night. My friends and I arrived just after midnight, and although some of them said they heard sounds or thought they saw strange lights, there seemed to be no sign of the mysterious woman in white. After about an hour of photographing every inch of the graveyard, with my focus being on Lizzie's monument, I suggested we take a break and get coffee from a local diner. Before we departed, I also decided to leave my tape recorder behind. I started the recorder and set it down on the ground in front of the headstone of the woman in white. We left the cemetery knowing we had to return in 30 minutes when the tape would run out. We made our leave to warm up and discuss the evening. Between coffee and small talk at the diner, I realized it had been over an hour since we left and we'd better return. I told the group to stay in the car, that I would run in and grab the tape recorder. As I approached the location where I had left it, I was shocked to find that it was still recording. I switched it off and returned to the car. On our drive home, my friends wanted to listen to the tape, so I put the cassette in the car's stereo and rewound it. It stopped rewinding after only a few seconds. That rewound really fast, commented one of my friends. Too fast, I thought. And then I pressed play. As suddenly as it started, the tape ended. We sat in the car, shocked. You could clearly hear me note at the beginning the time and walk away. 
The noise at the end was me picking up the recorder and turning it off. So how had the tape recorded only 38 seconds over the course of more than an hour? I knew that some tape recorders had an automatic voice recording feature, but this one did not. And upon further listening, I became convinced that I could hear the click of the buttons right after I left and right before I returned, as if someone was turning off the tape recorder and turning it back on again. The concept of having evidence that was non-evidence was fascinating, and I knew that I would spend the following days researching the cemetery and the life of Lizzie. The next few days found me poring over old newspapers in search of information on the life of Lizzie. After five solid days at a dozen or more libraries, the situation was starting to seem hopeless. As pages flew by on the microfiche machine, my eyes caught a glimpse of Lizzie's last name. I rolled the pages back in the hopes that she was mentioned in the article. I realized it was an obituary, but not for Lizzie. The person named was Beth. And suddenly, looking at the dates, I understood that it was her obituary. It was Elizabeth's death notice. I made a photocopy, grabbed my notes, and headed home for the night. I felt like it was a breakthrough, but I couldn't understand why. That night I started looking over my photos from my afternoon in the cemetery with my black cat companion. As I stared at one photo of the little black cat sitting perfectly in front of Lizzie's headstone, I noticed something behind him, something barely readable scraped into the bottom of the monument. It was only now visible since the cat had pushed the overgrown grass down. I couldn't believe my eyes. By the time the sun was rising, I was back at the cemetery. I approached Lizzie's stone, got onto my knees, and pulled the surrounding grass away. There on the base of the monument, almost completely worn away by the elements, imperfectly scratched into the stone, were the words, I am Beth. I concluded from her obituary and this message hidden by time that whoever had originally commissioned the monument had misnamed this girl, and she was forever now to be remembered by the wrong name. Could this be the reason she still walked the cemetery? I raced to my car and drove to a local florist. I purchased a dozen flowers, and on the card I wrote, To Beth, you are remembered. I returned to the cemetery and lay the flowers by the grave. I said a small prayer and left feeling content. No one sees the woman in white anymore, not that I know of, but every year, if you go to that cemetery on Beth's birthday, you'll see the flowers that I still leave there, so that she'll know she's remembered, even if she now only exists in the realm of the weird. weird.